Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's July the 7th, 2021. It's uh, mid-morning on the west coast of the United States in San Francisco. Um, in many ways, though, of course, in our age of global capitalism, the world doesn't sleep. Money is always being traded. It's always being moved around the world by our uh, champions of finance, by our billionaires and perhaps even at some point trillionaires who manage our global capitalist system. Seems, though, in some ways we're beginning to fall in love with our captains of not fall in love, that was a, 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 um, a, a major error, we're beginning to fall out of love with our captains of global finance. We all know, of course, the story or perhaps the parable of Bernie Madoff. Um, he died in, in April of this year. I don't think uh, many people were grieved. Um, Jeffrey Epstein, another of our captains, we're never quite sure how he got his money. He's a, a big-time sex criminal who committed suicide a, a year ago in prison. Uh, another of our captains of global capitalism, Harvey Weinstein, who managed much of the, the money and the organization of creativity in Hollywood, is about to be extradited to California to stand trial on sexual assault trials. Now, of course, not all captains of global capitalism are sex criminals, but uh, Bill Gates was a naughty boy. His wife um, uh, divorced him and, and she has announced that she may not even be able to work together with him anymore at his foundation, the Gates Foundation, which is supposed to be doing so much good for the world. Uh, meanwhile, we've realized through ProPublica, an interesting piece of research, uh, journalistic research done a couple of weeks ago, None of our captains of capitalism pay much tax, including some of the guys who seem to be pretty good, like George Soros and in some ways, I guess, Michael Bloomberg, Bezos, Buff uh, Buffett, Bloomberg, Musk, Icahn, Soros. They're not paying tax. Um, today, uh, we have the news that Jeff Bezos, um, the richest man in the world, his wealth record now hit $211 billion uh, because... Um, of the Pentagon move to perhaps uh, uh, challenge a, a deal they made with Microsoft, uh, which might benefit Amazon. Uh, Bezos is not the most popular man in the world. Uh, 70,000 people recently signed petitions to stop him returning from Earth uh, after his, um, space to, uh, his trip to space next month. Um, this is not just an American thing. I picked up a, a piece from a Polish financial uh, online resource comparing Bernie Madoff with a, a disgraced uh, Pakistani financier, Arif Nakfi. And he is the subject of our show today. Um, two London-based journalists, Simon Clark and Will Lausch, have a new book out. Actually, it's out today called the key man, which is about um, Nakvi's rise and fall in this rotten or seemingly rotten uh, 
capitalist system. And I'm thrilled that um, one of the authors of the book, Simon Clark, is talking to us from London. Uh, Simon. Hello, Andrew. Is, is Arik Nakvi, is he the, the Pakistani version of Bernie Madoff? Well, he's um, innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. But the well, we take that for granted. But this is not a court of law, Simon. And I don't think you would have spent... Uh, all your time um, investigating this guy if you didn't think there was an element of guilt here. He's been indicted by the US Department of Justice and faces 291 years in jail if found guilty. The charge sheet is long and serious. He was indicted with five of his fellow former executives from his company, which was called Abraj, which was based in Dubai and was a, a global firm. Um, and one of his... Uh, fellow former employee colleagues has been um, has already pleaded guilty um, so the charge list is serious um, yeah is there a parable here Simon um, as I said your, your book is a very readable narrative the key man the true story of how the global elite was duped by a capitalist fairy tale um, in its own right it's an interesting story perhaps a, a, a crime movie um, but there's a broader narrative here, a parable. You had a, a piece in the Wall Street Journal earlier this week. He convinced the elite he invested for good, then the money vanished. It doesn't sound to me as if the elite needed a lot of convincing. Is he a cause or an effect, Arif? Um, uh, is Arif Nakvi a cause and effect of our seemingly increasingly rotten global capitalist system? He's both. He he saw an opportunity um, to pitch himself as someone who could make people money and end poverty at the same time. It's a very seductive narrative. And Bill Gates handed over $100 million. Uh, US government was investor. UK and French governments were investors too. You know, your, your, your typical fraud, such as... Uh, Bernie Madoff or the Wolf of Wall Street, they were offering people a chance to make more money. They was, their pitch was, give me your money, I'll make you some more money and give it back to you. Um, and, and then they didn't. Um, Arif went a step further, Abraj went a step further. Their pitch was that they will make money for investors and at the same time, they would help end global poverty by investing in hospitals and clinics in developing countries in Africa and South Asia, or in food companies or technology companies, and providing jobs and services. They did make investments in some companies and hospitals, but not all the money went where it was supposed to go. Uh, and hundreds of millions of dollars went missing. And uh, when the investors finally caught up with them, and subsequently the FBI, the firm collapsed. And now um, they have some serious questions to answer in court. I want to come back to this children's story of getting seriously rich and doing seriously good at the same time. As you say, it's a seduction. It's the great seduction, both in global capitalism and where I'm from, where I'm talking to you from, Silicon Valley. But before we get to that, tell me a little bit about this guy, Arif Nakvi. I mean, he... Um, he, he's, a, he's a Pakistani, age 60, born in Karachi, educated at the London School of Economics. 
on paper he sounds fine. What, what what kind of man do you think he is or was in terms of committing these crimes, financial crimes? He's a very charming, intelligent and ambitious man. He went to school in the city where he was born in Karachi in southern Pakistan. He went to Karachi Grammar School, which was founded by the British in the late 1800s. Uh, by the time Arif went there, all the most of the students were Pakistanis like himself, but they were learning a British syllabus. They did O-levels and A-levels. Everything was in English. You're not going to tell me that we blame the O-levels and A-levels on this, are we, Tom? Uh, I, I apologise, Simon. No, the point is that he he was educated in a British English language system, which was a ticket to globalization. He went from there to the London School of Economics. And from the London School of Economics, he entered the, the finance industry. Um, this, this, this gave him the skills and the access to, to build a career um, globally, to meet Americans, to meet Brits, um, and I mean, I understand what you're saying, but so what? Many, many smart young men and some women get that kind of opportunity, and they don't end up in jail. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not saying that that's the cause for his um, demise or for his alleged wrongdoing, but that was a necessary part of his his his, his journey. Um, he he made his pitch to the billionaires and politicians who would go to Davos. He could speak their language. Um, but was there um, something, in, in your view, is there something intrinsically rotten about him? When I read about the Madoff story, I mean, I, I'm no expert. I actually haven't read any books on Madoff. But my understanding is that he told some lies at first and then those lies grew and grew and grew. And in the end... He was buried by them. I mean, it doesn't make him any less guilty. It doesn't make him any less uh, of, a, of an evil man in many ways. But do you get the sense that Sharif cheated a little bit at first and then it all caught up with him and he was forced to steal more and more in this Ponzi scheme? Yeah, very much so. Um, I think there were corners were cut and then more corners were cut. Then money was moved to hide the corners that had been cut, and then more money needed to be moved to hide those corners being cut as well. And eventually, it built a very fragile system that required more and more money moving around within the firm to to hide um, to hide holes in funds, um, and it made the firm very fragile. And in the end, it all came down very quickly. Simon. Do you think he believed his pitch about doing good and making money at the same time? Or was this a fraud right from the beginning? I think he believes his pitch to a significant extent. Um, and I think a lot of the people that gave him, well, the people that gave him money clearly believed it. They do believe in this 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 philosophy that, private capital, billionaires moving money, investing or, or giving philanthropically is, is the best way to solve problems. It's the American way, isn't it? Rather than, rather than the British way. I mean, 
American capitalism is rooted on in, in philanthropy, in 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 the Musks and the Bezoses and the and the, um, and the Gates doing good, as opposed to being taxed significantly, and then the state redistributing their wealth. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we have lots of entrepreneurs over here in the UK. It's not it's not the Soviet Union, but there is one important difference between the UK. Or even and the Russia UK. isn't the Soviet Union anymore. Is it, it? Indeed. So there is a big difference between the UK and the US in terms of healthcare provision. In the UK, the national service is funded by taxpayers and is free at the point of use. And that's obviously not the case in the United States. Now, Arif's biggest adventure, or one of his biggest adventures, was to raise a $1 billion healthcare fund to provide clinics and hospitals in the poorest countries. And these would be for the poorest people, but they were private services. They required payment. And um, the Gates Foundation, US, French, and UK governments got behind this um, and, and handed him a lot of money. Um, the problem was that the, the poor people in these countries couldn't pay for those services. Um, and it basically doesn't work. Um, so the poor are... are being ripped off on every level and every sort of in, in, in every entrance and exit of, of this scheme in, in terms of how somehow he got the money in the first place and then in building an ideology around them and then building services which may not even exist, which they can't pay for anyway. Yes. There is it's, an alternative. Uh, you're not, you're not, he, he's, he, he's not uh, an endearing character, um, Simon. As you wrote this book, did you at any point feel sorry for him? Did you think, well, maybe this guy isn't so bad. He meant well. He just was out of his depth and panicked. He's a very charming person, especially if he wants something from you. And have you met him? Did you interview yeah, him? I have. I, I first interviewed him in, in Dubai in 2007, and it was a very unusual interview. And at the, by the end of it, I, I clearly I couldn't trust him. Um, but just to finish what I was saying, he was very charming if he wanted something from you, and he wasn't necessarily very charming if he didn't want something from you. And that's not an endearing characteristic. And not an unusual characteristic, either of powerful people. Uh, Simon, you begin your Wall Street Journal piece um, with a description of him at, the, um, at, a, at a major f financial event in, um, in, in New York. Uh, he says to the crowd um, at the New York City's Mandarin Hotel in the Monday morning of September of 2017, it's a crucial moment in history. It's an opportunity to immutably and absolutely change the course of innumerable lives. Um, Simon, this is an ideology which we've had represented, I think, in some ways quite legitimately on the show by someone like Ronald Cohen, uh, the Israeli Anglo-Israeli entrepreneur, very wealthy man, who believes that we can indeed reorganize the architecture of 21st century capitalism. In writing the book and, and researching Arik Nakvi, what do you think? Uh, um, are these visions of people like Paul Polman and, and Ronnie Cohen, are they real? I mean, I'm not saying they're crooks like, like Nakvi, but is this in any way conceivable, do you think, to, to, to reform capitalism so we can do good and become rich at the same time? 
So I, I know Ronald Cohen well as well. I've, I've known him as a journalist. I've interviewed him a number of times over the last 15 or so years, and I have a lot of respect for him. I do think that capitalism and capitalists can play a very important role in doing capitalism better, in making the world a better place, but they certainly can't do it alone. There is a need for governments and regulators, um, and there is a need for tax-funded public services. I think that you know the Davos elite, they do push a vision of a world in which capital and capitalists can solve all problems. And I do think there is an ideological element to that in the sense that if, if they are to believe and they can provide whatever public services are needed, whether it's education or healthcare or whatever, then, then there's no need for government. So there's no need for taxation. And I think that's a part of what their, their message is to the world, which is please reduce taxes. Thank you very much. I mean, everyone prefers lower taxes than higher taxes, but if taxes are being used efficiently to provide a good quality of service to all citizens, then, then they can do something very effectively that, that, that capital flows from investors cannot. There's a place for innovation. There's a place for private capital. There's also a place for regulators, making sure that people are doing what they say they're doing. There's a place for government. There's a place for taxpayer-funded services too. It's not all or nothing, one or the other. It's a, it's a mixture of, of actors and agencies and individuals and companies and governments that are required to make the world a better place, to make society function better, to make the economy work better. And people who've got one simple answer to all our problems, I think, deserve a few questions and perhaps a little bit of skepticism. Mm, absolutely. Uh, one of the more chilling aspects of, of your story is that people like Nakvi trade off the crisis of capitalism. In this New York event, he told on the stage um, the Unilever CEO then, the, the, the then Unilever CEO, and I think he's now chairman, Paul Pullman, um, that the global financial system was broken. Well, it's no wonder with people like Nakvi. Pullman seems, I've seen him perform, I've met him. He seems a, a legitimate character. Um, what is the connection between the relatively broken nature of the capital, the global capitalist system, and characters like Nakvi? And what can well-meaning reformers like a Ronnie Cohen or a Paul Polman, what can they do to make the system better? Apart from recognizing there's a role for the state, how can capitalism clean up its own stables? There are enormous inequalities and differences in the world economy you know the average u.s income is sixty thousand dollars plus the average income in pakistan is about one and a half thousand dollars in ethiopia it's about a thousand dollars and and these are, are very very real differences in the availability of resources to people in the world and people like ronald cohen and paul Pullman want to draw attention to those differences and that's to be lauded, that's a very good thing. Um, I think what would be great is if, in addition to drawing attention to the problems and inequalities and coming up with answers, they also provided a platform for people from the margins um, to speak, to participate in coming up with solutions to problems. 
um, you know, you go to a, a Davos and people are talking about inequality and poverty, but everyone in the room is very wealthy, um, if not extremely wealthy. And, and that's kind of a, a trend with increasingly with impact investing is it is it's quite an elite sport for something that wants to make the world a more inclusive place. And it seems to me that it, it should become as unacceptable for a room full of wealthy people exclusively to talk about poverty as it is for a room full of men to talk about gender equality on their own. I mean, well we need said. More... I, I like that idea, Simon. I haven't heard it before, but I think you're absolutely right. I think the need would we punish to... them? Would we, would we take away their money? Would we tax them? Would we spank them publicly? Well, that's what Anand Girid Haradas would like, uh, the, the author of <laughs> Winners Take All, which is an excellent yeah. book. He's, there is a growing campaign, a momentum for, of people saying, look, too many resources have, 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 have gathered around billionaires. Let's tax them more uh, and deploy that taxation in an equal way through government spending rather than through philanthropy where the billionaires decide where the money does or doesn't go. I mean, there's a big movement there. There are academics like Mariana Matsukato who are being listened yeah, to. I know Mariana. She's, she, right. she's been on the show before. We, we've talked a lot about it. We've talked about the crisis of capitalism. I mean, we had Tom Burgess, another uh, UK-based uh, financial journalist. I'm sure you know him on the show recently, talking about his new book, Kleptopia. Um, we also had him talking about the connection between kleptopia, the, the kleptocratic global financial system and ex-president Trump. We also had Catherine Belton on the show, author of Putin's People, a book now she's being sued by Putin's people in London uh, about how what she calls KGB capitalism, not only taken over Russia, but the world. Um, do you, what, what, is, does the NACV story play into to the Burgess Belton narrative of the real rottenness of the global international system, one particularly being controlled by, by the Russians, by Putin, and by other very unseemly political regimes? Yes, it does. Um, in, in, in a couple of very important ways. There, there's, there's a club of people, they meet at Davos every year, or pre-COVID they did, and similar meetings around the world and and they've become a very influential group of people and what's chilling about this book or well, one of the things that I was shocked at was that that Arif Nakvi was on the board of the Interpol Foundation which is a foundation which was set up to raise money for Interpol the uh, global police organization and he sat on that board with Carlos Ghosn who was the CEO of Renault Nissan? Who, when Another he international trouble, fugitive, yeah, right. He got into trouble with the law in Japan, and to avoid his day in court, he hired some ex special services guys to put him in a box and fly him out of Japan in an airplane covertly. <laughs> and you know, at one point, he would have been sitting on the board of Interpol Foundation next to Arif. Nakvi, and no doubt, you know, Jeffrey Epstein and Bernie Madoff were somehow involved too. Uh, it, it, it really, I, ho I hope uh, you're going to write more about this, Simon. Let's end by talking about Pakistan, um, a country which most of us don't know very much about, apart from two facts. Firstly, it's very poor. Secondly, it borders on Afghanistan and is 
very controversial in terms of its role in um, Islamic politics. Um, obviously, the fact that he was born in Pakistan and it's such a poor country adds to the sort of the, the tragic paradoxes of the narrative. You also write in the book of his connections with some of the, the Pakistani political elite, Nawaz Sharif um, and uh, the current uh, Prime Minister Imran Khan. What does the book reveal, your, your book, The Key Man, Man, what does it reveal about Pakistani politics and the nature of the regime in Pakistan? Well, it shows that... Uh... Not unlike American politics, there's a lot of money in politics. Um, Arif has funded Imran Khan. Uh, the book also shows that he attempted to bribe um, Nawaz Sharif, Imran Khan's um, main political rival. So Arif was was playing all sides. Does does, uh, Khan, does Sharif come out of the book better than Khan, or are they both implicated uh, in some way? I, I don't think any of them come out of it better. I think the problem with Pakistani politics is the lack of transparency around, particularly around political funding. Right, and um, of course, uh, Afga um, Pakistan is 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 very much in the news now with the U.S. exit from Afghanistan. It's bound to become another geopolitical hotspot. So that adds to the complexity. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and Arif's biggest investment in Pakistan was in Karachi Electric, which is the, the main power provider to all of southern Pakistan, which is the sort of economic heart of the country. Uh, that was a very political investment that he, he, he made there. And he agreed to sell it to the Chinese. And um, that investment has been delayed repeatedly. Uh, my sources tell me that it was delayed by civil servants in Pakistan who were unhappy about, again, the lack of transparency and the fact that Karachi Electric owes an enormous amount of money to the gas supplier. So it hasn't paid its gas bill. Um, but there is a lot of intrigue and a lot of a lot of theories around around that. that, that yeah, I mean, I trust your book, Simon. I haven't met you or Will, but you both work for the the. The, the Wall Street Journal, which is is anything but a, a left-wing rag. Um, but of course, this is a controversial subject. There's another book coming out about him, um, another UK academic. I'm not going to have him on the show, which sounds to me like it's a more sympathetic read. How has this story played out in Pakistan? Are, are, are there Pakistani um, journalists or papers arguing that he's being picked on? Um, as uh, as a Pakistani, that it's part of some sort of anti-Pakistani plot of some sort? Yes, there is. There is another book which has been written which gives Arif's point of view and Arif has, has cooperated with extensively. He, um, he's repeatedly declined my request for an interview over the last two years. Why do you think that is? Because he, 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 he can't charm you? He doesn't trust you? Um, well, you'll have to ask him, but he's very keen on having his point of view represented unquestioningly. And that's not the job of a, a journalist who's worth something. Journalists have to speak to multiple sources and check their facts, provi provide evidence and sourcing for what they write. Um, 
and and Arif has repeat, repeatedly not wanted to answer the questions that I've sent him over the years. Um, with my colleagues at the Wall Street Journal, we were at the forefront of investigating the the wrongdoing, and so I think that he he he's reluctant to talk to me for that reason. But I am very keen to give him as a fair, as much as a fair hearing as anyone else would. Well, your book, the key man, um, the the true history, uh, the true story of how the global elite was duped by a capitalist fairy tale, is is very fair. I thought very well researched, very rigorous, by two extremely um, professional journalists. Congratulations um, on that, Simon. Um, uh, you're uh, in your home in Sussex, just outside Brighton, in these strange post-COVID or maybe post-COVID times. Uh, in addition to your new book, The Key Man, which is just out today, what else should people be reading uh, to make sense of global economics, of the perhaps rottenness or the potential um, potential goodness of our capitalist system? In addition to the new books by Ronnie Cohen, Catherine Belton, and Tom Burgess, which we've had on the show, anything else comes to mind that helped you in making sense of global capitalism? The Wall Street Journal comes to mind. Um, but I think a healthy, balanced diet of news is good. Um, the Guardian, I enjoy reading. The Times of London, the New York Times. Um, it's great that there are so many different sources of information, um, especially, you know, podcasts such as your own. I mean, it's great that there are more voices. I just think it's always a good question for readers and listeners and viewers to ask themselves. How does the journalist know what they know? What are their sources? Where is the information coming from? I mean, that's what we are constantly having to do at the Wall Street Journal. We can't publish whatever we think or whatever we suspect. We have to get evidence, show our sourcing to our editors. Most of the time, show our sourcing to our, our readers. And let's also remember, Simon, that the your paper is owned by another of these Davos elite types, Rupert Murdoch. Um, so they can do good and bad at the same time. Uh, Bezos owns the, uh, the Washington Post. So uh, the, these guys are buying into media too, but they seem to be relatively hands-off when it comes to their ownership of media, or at least some of them. Yeah, we're, we're all human. We're all a mixture of virtues and, and vices. And, you know, none of us have the absolute truth. The important and good thing about democracy is that in a democratic system we have we are we have the ability to ask questions and to expect answers and um the issue with the extremely wealthy is if they get such concentrations of power that they cease to be accountable to everyone else and there's nothing wrong with being wealthy or mo moving resources in an in an amazing way or sending people to the moon. It's just or even going to the moon like Bezos. Exactly, but if if people who get all these resources cease to see themselves as members of the human race anymore, effectively because they've become so arrogant or hubristic, that's when we have a problem. And that is a characteristic which I've um, seen in many people, including the key man. Including the key man, um, Arif uh, 
uh, Nakvi. Uh, I hope they're going to make make it into a movie to go with the third man, Simon. Congratulations on the book. Um, Thank it's, you, Andy. It's, uh, it's honest and it's also brave in all seriousness. So when you write about these people who are worth many millions of dollars, you're also risking your personal safety. So I respect that. I respect you speaking so openly and publicly about him and the book. Uh, it's a must read for anyone interested in Pakistan, in the rottenness of the global financial system. So congratulations. And I look forward to the next book. Maybe you can write a book about the Davos elite and how they've ruined the world. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew.